Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, dreamers. It's time to wake up and take a walk down Sideshow Alley with us and strap in for another Tech Talk and roller coaster ride with Matt Dickerson. Howdy, Matt. It's been another week in virtual paradise, yes? It has. But actually, what's really interesting, I've been going around just riding my bike around the cycleway as I normally do, but some picnic groups have started popping up. As you can imagine, little groups are allowed to come out now, so we're slowly coming out of lockdown. And I really started thinking about it, and I've spoken to a few people about it, about what our workforce will look like. So we're getting people that are able to come out of lockdown and they can go back to work in certain circumstances, a whole range of rules. We all know those don't need to go into them. But what is the workforce going to look like? And yeah, we're headed for a new normal. We are. So the hybrid workforce I think we'll see a lot more of. I think we'll see also just people saying, do I need to go into the office five days a week? Can I do effective work four days a week and stay at home one day and not waste my time around the water cooler talking about what was on TV last night or what was the latest streaming show I looked at? So that whole hybrid workforce, I think, will be a really interesting thing. And obviously, technology plays an incredibly important part in that. Well, I've yeah, got a lot of friends who've discovered working from home yeah. and they love it. <laughs> and I've got a lot of friends who've decided that it's for the dogs and they're back to the office. Oh, and there you go. And so there might be different preferences there. So some yeah, people yeah. might really like that interaction with people. They might love the idea that they can sit around the water cooler and have a bit of a chat and, and people like that. Yeah. Other people go, you know what, I can be more effective at home and I want to do that. But what will be the real challenge there, I think, is for employers trying to address the needs mm. of employees. It's always a challenge for employees addressing various needs of employees. But now that they might have the option or they want to be able to have the option, all of that, and then the ability for internet service providers to provide the bandwidth, for the technology providers to provide the equipment to handle all of that, that's the real challenge, I think, going forward. And I think the ones who've been able to do it have been able to show it for 18 months now that they can do it. Thank you, technology, for yeah. being uh, for allowing it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, interesting, anyway, see where we go with next. And I think there'll be more developments. We'll see more innovation. We'll see because of that whole different landscape we've got now. If there is one thing we have learned during lockdown, it is that there is video conferencing and then there is video conferencing. Am I right? If you want your video conferences to be remembered for the content of the meeting rather than the substandard quality of the technology, then Crestron is the solution for you. Crestron is simple to deploy, simple to use, yet delivers exceptional performance. To improve your next video conference, visit meetwithcrestron.com forward slash tech talk. Well, we've got a a fair roster of cool stories for you today, folks. We've got Bezos catapulting more elderly citizens into the stars. Matt, uh, you've got something uh, to turn the heads of Aussie wheat cockies and give them a crick in the neck. And personal household robots are finally here to herald in the age of the Jetsons. But we'll get this train on the tracks with a story that really surprised me. A new angle on internet business, folks. You see, Netflix has got the Koreans really wound up. An internet provider in South Korea reckons they're creating too much traffic. Netflix is creating too much traffic. So they've taken them to court. Matt, I was thinking about cancelling my subscription, but something I've missed clearly out of Netflix um, that I'm, I should be watching. You should be. Have you watched Squid Game yet? Not yet. Yeah, right. Well, you need but to I'm get onto it. But I'm going to now. Yeah, now that everyone's <laughs> onto it, it's the number one show in 90 countries at the moment for Netflix across the world. I can't believe that. So it's bigger than Game of Thrones, It is bigger than Game of Thrones. Wow. It's bigger than everything. Yeah, yeah. And I've watched a little bit of it. My kids have been watching a bit, and I've kind of come in and went, 
oh yeah, it looks a bit too violent for me and I've left it alone. But little did I know that everyone else loved that violence apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a real challenge. Here's the question. The heart of this question is, who should be paying for the infrastructure that internet service providers need to provide internet access to consumers? I would have thought the internet service providers would have been the ones paying for it. That kind of makes sense. Mm. Content providers like Netflix, their job is to set something up for people to want to see. Just supply stuff. Exactly right. And then the internet service providers say, hey, Mr. Customer, we'll give you a connection to your home. We'll take care of the traffic between your home and the content providers, and that's it. But (laughs) SK Broadband in South Korea have said, that's all well and good until Netflix came along and just hammered our connections. Blew it away. Absolutely blew it away. And the data they gave said from 2018, from May 2018 till now, their internet traffic has gone up by 24 times. And they're blaming all that on Netflix. There might be some other things in there as well. And so they, I guess they see themselves as a bit of a toll booth. They, they need to have a toll booth there for the amount of traffic that's coming through yeah. on their highway. Yeah, and to me, I think, it's a, well, they're a bit out of line, really, in my opinion, because their job is to provide the connectivity. What you're connecting to, that's someone else's job. That's not SK Broadband's job. And yeah. the same way, it's not Netflix's job to actually provide the highway for it to come down. Their yeah. job is to provide the content. Now, the unfortunate part for poor old Netflix, and I, I say that with a poor slight tongue Netflix. in my cheek, <laughs> the poor outcome for them is that the Central District Court ruled against Netflix. And I must admit, I wouldn't want to be taking on a South Korean firm in a South Korean court because I reckon my, my, my cards will be slightly <laughs> stacked against me. Yeah. Slightly, yeah. So they ruled in favour of SK Broadband and they said that you should pay a fee for usage. And the fee that we've calculated so far for 2020, for example, was US $31.55 million. So it wasn't nothing. Mm. It's mm. not a huge amount of money for Netflix, but it's not nothing. Part of the problem there for Netflix is that other companies like Facebook, like Amazon, like Apple, all do pay some internet service providers. Yeah, so they're a bit out on their own, although YouTube doesn't pay at the moment in South Korea. So YouTube and Netflix, who you could probably argue, or Google, who owns YouTube, obviously, you could probably argue that they're pretty big in terms of creating a desire to go and use the internet, but they're the ones that aren't paying. Amazon, Apple, they certainly, and Facebook, obviously, they certainly generate a fair bit of traffic Well, this is a new angle I'd never even considered before, but does it open the floodgates for other countries to now say, oh, hang on, Netflix, you've got a lot of money to be made out of this. I think we can tap into that, and if you want to use our our highway, then you're going to have to pay the toll booth. Well, interesting enough, in the US, there is one company that Netflix does pay some money to, Comcast, they actually have paid money to for the last seven years, but there is something they get extra for that. They've actually done a deal with Comcast where Comcast customers can get slightly better speeds than a normal internet service provider, so the Netflix shows can be looking better or they can do it in high definition, whatever it might be. So that's a deal they did seven years ago. So there is a slight bit of precedent there for Netflix paying, but they felt like they were getting something extra for what they were paying. In this scenario, it's just you're getting the normal traffic. You're getting whatever else is getting, but we want you to pay for it. I don't think we've seen the last of this. It's only the first ruling so far. There'll be several more appeals to go. Solicitors have got to eat as well, so they'll have to go through a process there. But it is really interesting just to see. see Solicitors have got to eat (laughs) the poor starving solicitors. (laughs) So it is interesting to see where that will all end up, though, because I think you're right, that just confuses, it muddies the waters completely across the rest of the world Mm. for what your job is, a content provider, suddenly you need to start paying for the internet service. No, that's not my job. That's the job of the consumer. (laughs) Well, there you have it, folks. Squid Game, get into it, apparently. Uh, If you haven't heard of it before now, you're a bit like me and out of the loop. Time to get into the loop. Get on the Netflix. (laughs) Trivia time, folks. Question number one. 
how long is the world's longest subsea power cable? And part B of that question, why is it important for the future of the planet? And the answer, Matt, is... Well, let's go back a bit. Let's tease the listeners a little bit here. Let's go back. And there's some interesting stuff I know that we've talked about before. When we go back to the beginning of electricity supply in the homes of... All the way back to Westinghouse and Edison, battling yeah, our big yeah. arm wrestle, yeah? And it was a great arm wrestle and two great innovators in different ways obviously had that battle. And we're talking about back in the late 1880s, 1890s, that this battle raged on. And part of that battle, of course, was DC versus AC. Yeah. And my understanding at the time, or in, in looking at the past history, is a little bit different to what it is now, in that AC won the day because it was easy to transform those voltages from low voltage to high voltage. And DC basically lost out, even though Edison talked about the dangers of AC and how terrible it was and yeah. all sorts of misinformation that Edison was spreading back in those it's days. It's a juicy story, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, a, it's a great little bit of history there if you go through and look at it. But in the end, AC did win the day and General Electric effectively bought out Edison's company and went forward with AC. So you end up with Westinghouse with AC and Nikola Tesla was involved there with Westinghouse as well with AC. Mm -hmm. And of course then General Electric when AC, so everyone went AC, and that made sense, and we've moved forward a long way. But this long undersea cable that we're talking about is 724 kilometres long, to answer the question, in terms of <laughs> how long that was. It's the longest subsea cable in the world. But what I was fascinated to see was that it was actually DC, not AC. Yeah, right. So this blows me away. Now, I teach physics, folks, and, and part of our syllabus is we teach that uh, yeah, AC is the one you want to use if you're going to transfer power in long distance. Yeah. But anyway, I'm going to let you tell the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, well, and that is... My understanding as well, that's my understanding from when I was studying physics back at uni. It was AC was what you used for those transmissions, those long transmissions. And I thought that's why Westinghouse won the, won the big argument. But uh, Well, he did win the big argument based on that, except if he could have just had a little bit of technology from today and taken it back to 1892, then he might have lost the battle, or if Edison could have brought mm. that technology back. Because the real reason that they won the battle was it was very easy to transform low voltage to high voltage with AC, it was very difficult to do that with DC. The reason you use DC for a long undersea cable, as I said, 724 kilometres, and that's not the longest in the world. There's one in China that's over the land, not undersea, oh, 3,300 okay. kilometres over oh, land, right. and they wow. use DC for that one as well. In fact, most of these long cables are using DC. And again, I went, well, that's a bit confusing. That's not how I understand it. So more research, of course, more rabbit holes to dive down, more mm. interesting things to find out. But DC is more efficient to transfer at those very high voltages when you're trying to get a lot of electricity from point A to point B. But the reason you don't do it for normal shorter distances is getting the electricity from AC to DC is a bit complicated and a bit expensive. And you really only do it if you're going to have those long transmission lines that makes it worthwhile. One of the other reasons it's better is that if you've got some grids, and in this case here, this subsea cable is connecting Norway across to Great Britain. Now you've got Norway, AC, as you can imagine, around the country for people using in their homes, Great Britain the same. But when you start trying to transfer AC down a long line and then try and get it all in sync, you're trying to get a grid in sync in Great Britain with a grid over in Norway. Yeah, right. That becomes really complicated. And if you get that grid a bit out of sync, you start obviously to get some cancellation of the effective power yeah, coming through. Yeah. So by doing it with DC, they can actually take grids that are AC 
and not have to worry about trying to get all that in sync. So you basically re-sync it, if you like, at each end, and that's oversimplifying what they do at each end. But that's a way that you can have, because some of these various interconnectors might be countries that are at 60 hertz or 50 hertz. Yeah, That gets complicated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By doing DC, you're effectively getting rid of that because the transform at each end is ignoring oh, that part of it. Yeah. But this is, getting back to your second part, why is it important to the planet? This is the sixth interconnector that Great Britain has with its European neighbours. And one of the things with Great Britain is they're saying, we've got too much electricity that's being generated by fossil fuel, 46%. We want to get more renewable power. But we haven't got the reliability in our renewable power yet. What can we do about that? These large interconnectors are used so that you can have hydropower in Norway or you can have wind power out of, say, the Netherlands or you can have solar power out of other places in Europe. And all these different technologies are sometimes providing power and sometimes not as much. The wind might be blowing as much, the sun might be shining in the middle of the night. Go figure, yeah. Yep. Yeah, so all of that makes sense. So Great Britain said, we want to basically have a good, smooth power supply. And while we're trying to transition to renewables, we want to be able to rely on some of our neighbouring countries to do that. And so this is part of the whole push towards renewables having more interconnectedness across, in this case, European nations. But Great Britain believe that their 28% that they've got now of renewable power will increase enough by the year 2025 they'll be able to start selling some electricity back down these interconnectors to some of these other countries. For example, when Norway isn't generating electricity with hydropower, they might need some electricity from Great Britain from their wind turbines, and they seem to be focused on mainly wind in Great Britain. So I think that's really important. But what I also love is the idea of what we in this country can do with some interconnectors, because we've got some countries nearby to us that are obviously across the oceans. We've got say Indonesia or Malaysia or the Philippines, even if you want to go far enough, even go as far as China. And so we've got in this country a big chunk of space in the middle of our country. The Simpson Desert, for example, is just one of our deserts, 176,500 square kilometres. I reckon there's a bit of space out there that we could use to say solar solar panels (laughs) maybe, yeah. We know we're putting wind turbines in around this country as well. But just imagine the idea here 1,000 square kilometres is a calculation I did back in 2009, how many solar panels or the area of solar panels to power this country. Mm. You get more than 1,000 square kilometres of solar panels, then let's start powering other countries. So with these subsea cables, why not in Australia have our export, our next big export, obviously we're digging stuff up out of the ground now and selling it everywhere across the world, but we're either going to get to the bottom of those holes or people don't want what we're digging up, which is probably going to happen more than the, the getting to the bottom of holes. But imagine us being an exporter of electricity across to some of these other countries. And when you look at some of those countries, Indonesia, 87% of their power is generated from fossil fuels. PNG, 75%. Singapore, 97% from fossil fuels. The Philippines, 75%. Malaysia, 86%. So we could do these countries a favour by generating power through some form of renewable, again, probably solar, and getting that across some subsea cables. And some of those countries are closer than 724 kilometres. So we get a bit of credit up. for being green. Oh, yeah. What wow. would that be like? <laughs> we don't get that at the moment, don't they? For <laughs> obvious reasons, much. no. But that's a really, to me, this is really exciting that these subsea cables, again, getting longer, getting mm. more efficient. This one is 515 kilovolts that we're talking about. So you're getting large voltages, they're using DC. Minimal losses in Minimal that. loss because it's such a large voltage. And they've also got this 15 centimetre diameter cable, two of them actually, that they're transmitting the electricity across. So the, the resistance there is very low. So you're not losing too much. And again, with that high voltage, very low current. So you're not losing a lot there in that transmission. But that's, to me, really exciting. And this is the future of generating power somewhere and using it somewhere else. And we could be an in 
integral part of that solution mm. across the world. Mm. Well, at least across our part of the world. I did look at New Zealand, but New Zealand is actually pretty good with their renewables, so they probably don't want to buy our electricity offers at this stage, so leave them alone for the moment. So has anyone told Gina Reinhardt about this? Well, let's tell a few private, because the, <laughs> the government doesn't want to know about it, so let's tell a few private rich people about this perhaps, concept. Yeah, perhaps she might be able to make some cash out of it. When Chippergeddon began to snowball in light of the consumer demand for electronics last year, car manufacturers noticed declining sales. Well... How did the world's leading EV manufacturer, Tesla, fare in light of this? Well, it is pretty exciting for Tesla. And again, we, we always have an EV story in there somewhere. But mm-hmm. this one's just a straight sales number story. They Tesla sold 200, 241,300 Teslas were sold in the last quarter or the third quarter of 2021. So from July to September, which is pretty good considering that the same quarter last year, 102,000 less Teslas were sold. Mm. So that's pretty exciting. And you look at this, mainly these sales are based on the ability for them to manufacture because the demand is still high. So they've increased fairly dramatically. Even their best quarter ever, which was the second quarter of this year, they sold 40,000 more cars than that quarter. So they're still going up. And what I love, the bit of irony here is that General Motors had a fair dip, a 33% dip from the same period last year, whereas Tesla went up by 102,000. But they only sold 446,997 vehicles, still more than Tesla. But I remember some quotes from companies like Ford, like GM, when Tesla were getting excited about selling 10,000 cars, 20,000 cars in a month. These guys laughed at Tesla. Gave him a pat on the head. And, and said, said we job. do that in a day. We do that in one shift. You're taking a whole month to get through that. Uh, go and have a serious go. Well, they are having a serious go, yeah, and their numbers are going quite well. Part of the way they've been able to address Chippergeddon is they've actually used other processes that they've been able to get and rewrite the software for them. So they've been a bit more flexible. And I think with Tesla, they're doing things a bit differently to other car manufacturers. So Toyota really created that whole just-in-time manufacturing process Mm. where you didn't have a big warehouse full of a whole bunch of parts. You said, well, all our manufacturers, we need these parts supplied on this schedule. So when it gets there, it almost goes straight into a car. Not quite, but very Mm. minimal storage of all the components. And so that worked really well, or works really well, as long as no one manufacturer falls over. In this case, chips are falling over. Mm. Tesla have taken almost an old-fashioned approach where they're saying we're going to do a lot of it ourselves or we're going to control more of the processing or the manufacturing of all of these parts. And so by doing that, they've had that flexibility so that it's not just in-time manufacturing, but again, with the chips, they still had to buy chips in, but they've been able to do that and reprogram those because they've got more of those skills internally to be able to get around some of these chip-again problems. So well done, Tesla. Yeah, they've gone back to subsistence. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, but they're continuing to forge ahead. So I don't know what the right answer will be going forward. The world has changed a bit, but maybe the whole chip again problem just coincidentally was around a pandemic problem. So maybe it will be a blip on the radar and the Toyota way will be the way to go in the future. But at the moment, Tesla's doing quite well. Mm, congratulations, Musk and his mates. Here's another story to rattle the branches of traditional farming. We do like to do this a bit, don't we, Matt? Yeah. When we talk crop farming here in Australia, we tend to think of broad, open hectares of golden wheat rippling in the wind under a big, big sky, or maybe, you know, hectares and hectares and hectares of fluffy white cotton buds as far as the eye can see. Well, get ready for another new wave of farming, folks, as that image gets tipped on its side and goes vertical. Matt, as the crisis of a shortage of inavailable space and resources hots up, is this a good time to be investing in ladders, perhaps? <laughs> Possibly ladders or high-rise buildings. <laughs> now, can I just say from the outset, James, 
I'm not trying to have a go at any of our farmers here. <laughs> I well, still love all all the farmers we have in Australia. Having looked into this a bit, I, I still don't see this as being the death of our farming. This is just going to support what we're trying to do to feed 7.5 billion people. And I think we've talked about it before lab meat, for example, yeah. and lab milk. And I think your point with those discussions was that it's probably not going to be that relevant in Australia where we've got, got good, space. Yeah, we've yeah. got space, good open expanses of land. We've also got sun, mm. and that's a pretty important part in anything you're doing involving agriculture. Whereas in Europe, you tend to have a lot less space and you also tend to have less sun in terms of the ability to, to grow from that sun. Now, you well, do have Europe and Asia alike. I mean, the Americas might have a bit of space like us, but yeah, yeah Europe and Asia in particular. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And even in England, for example, or in European countries, you do occasionally see the sun over there, but it seems to be so cloudy. And maybe that's just my yeah. impression when I've been there, but it just seems like it's... It's always seen on the television, so yeah. Exactly yeah. right. <laughs> well, And actually, you do talk to people in England, they say, oh, I love the idea of Australia. You've got so much sun over there. We've kind of got the same sun, but maybe we don't have so many clouds to cover it up. But in this scenario... I think this will be really applicable to really highly populated areas, areas without much space. And the transport part is quite interesting as well. If you start to grow the produce where you need the produce, Within your city limits, exactly right. So this is this well, particular that's been one. A big thing in my in my mind. Uh, I like to buy local because I know that you know they're not having to transport transport it very far, and so the energy that goes into that. We're we're in an energy crisis, folks. Yeah. So we need to think about. Buying local. Yep. Well, if you're a city slicker, you've got to get everything shipped in until this point. Until this, exactly right. So Nordic Harvest has got, they've built this first one, but obviously it's a bit of a trial. They'll see how it goes. And I'm imagining that this company and many other companies around the world will continue on this path. They've built a 14-storey building, or they've taken a 14-storey building and converted it to a farm. Now, the first thing you think of is, well, how does any sun get to any of those plants when it's 14 storeys high? How can the sun be exposed to those plants? And they're mainly growing leafy vegetables, basically, Mm. in this particular farm. Well, the sun isn't exposed to any of those. They're using LED lights. so that that makes sense? It does. And you're getting that exact amount of light exactly to each plant where it's needed because you've got on all those different levels all the, the LED lights. Of course, they're not burning coal to produce the electricity to run the LED lights. They're all using wind-certified energy. So you're just using renewable energy to produce electricity to basically power the LED lights. Low energy lights because they're not generating a lot of heat. Absolutely right. Yeah. And then by doing that, the first thing you get is you can grow all year round. You're not waiting for the seasons to be right. They can also work out exactly how much light is the best amount of light per day for these plants to grow. Again, you're not relying on, okay, we're in summer now, we've got 14 hours of sun a day. That's, I guess, good for growing. I hope so. You're getting mercy of nature. Yeah, Yeah. you're getting science to say what's the correct amount of light. You're also pumping in more carbon dioxide. I know that'll get some people around the world very excited. So you need carbon dioxide to grow plants. Yes, you do need carbon dioxide to grow plants, but we just anyway, let's not go down that path. <laughs> we'll get too too far down there. But so they're putting carbon dioxide in a rich carbon dioxide environment. The other thing I really liked about it is it's more or less a sealed environment. Not totally sealed, but it's basically a sealed environment against things like little bugs and pests and things that can come so along. So you're not requiring pesticides. Exactly right. Or so, herbicides. Yeah, exactly. So I thought that was brilliant. So you're growing these in a very clean environment. You're not using soil. You're using a gel-like substance for the yeah. plants to actually grow in and using robots to do all the seeding and then harvesting of everything that you need. And the water's being measured out. You're not losing oodles of water to evaporation. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. So when you weigh it all up, 
you basically get to grow your plants with 250 times less water than you would need in traditional or compared to traditional cropping. You're generating 80 times less in terms of greenhouse gases and that ability to grow all year round, plus the bonus of growing it where you need it. Again, for big cities in various places around the world, I'm talking about the Londons, the New Yorks, the Beijings, I can see absolutely that this is a great solution. Mm. But again, you are spot on. We do have a lot of people in this world to feed. So I think the farmers here in Australia, in our region, I think they'll still be needed for some time to come. It's going to be tricky getting those um, harvesters in the um, <laughs> elevators as well. They're big, big machines, aren't That's they? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and navigating around all the cement poles, supporting poles and whatnot. Anyway, better move on then. The world has changed dramatically over the last 18 months and the new normal will involve a hybrid workforce with video conferencing a part of that mix. You need your staff to focus on what really matters, the meeting, not the technology. Crestron can help your Teams or Zoom or WebEx meeting rooms work first time, every time, because Crestron is all about you. It is simple to deploy, simple to manage and a joy to use. To use video conferencing that adapts to the way you want to work, visit meetwithcrestron.com forward slash tech talk. Well, I happen to know that you've had an interesting bit of gear land on your doorstep, or, or should I say, at least in your side, your office now. Folks, we've all done uh, the, the Zooming, we've done the online meetings and whatnot, so we've got some new gear that you, you want to tell us about. Yeah, sure, and this is our episode sponsor, Crestron, have got video conferencing equipment, and they asked me to talk about it and have a look at it, so of course I said, sure, send me some gear out and let's have a look at it. And I thought about the early days when people were trying to develop websites, and there were some web developers out there and they were doing a very professional job and you'd go and pay them some money and you'd get something that looked fantastic. And then someone came along with the ability to edit them themselves and suddenly everyone was a yeah. web development expert. <laughs> and you'd look at some of those websites and you'd say, oh, that looks terrible. Yeah. But Jimmy, he knew all about it. He was going to go and make his own website and good luck to him. But the professionals still did a better job. And it's a bit like that over the last 18 months. Everyone has had the ability to do video conferencing. They've had to have that ability. And so they pull out whatever device they've got and they use whatever tool they've got handy and they do video conferencing and it's okay. Mm. And Crestron, the focus from Crestron is to say, let's do video conferencing a lot better. They didn't pop up five minutes ago when the whole COVID-19 thing started and everyone was doing video conferencing. They were already doing it for years and years beforehand. So they actually knew what they were doing. And then they said, here are some tools to make your video conferencing a little bit better. So I got the gear and I started playing around with it and I started doing some video calls with some people. And the first thing they said to me was, wow, you're coming through really clear. Of course, the microphones they build into their equipment are much higher quality than might be on your phone or your iPad or whatever the device might be. So well, that, that's one thing. If anyone's been suffering some Zoom fatigue there, um, and thank you Zoom for, for covering for us for so long, but, um, yeah, the sound can be a real problem and, and you just can't live with bad sound. It's It does make it frustrating, especially yeah, yeah. when you have someone, maybe a classroom environment where you're trying to be a teacher delivered to a classroom or a university environment trying to deliver and if the kids there can't hear what's mm. going on properly and then you want to have a bit of two-way interaction and it's cutting in and out and it's mm. not working that well. So that was the first thing that people noticed when I set up the gear and started doing some little test video calls. The sound quality was dramatically better. And of course, the video quality, they've got better cameras and they've got the ability, because they're using 
dedicated hardware to basically get a bit better compression. So even though you're using the same connections and you're still using the same tools you're familiar with, using Zoom or Microsoft Teams, using WebEx, the same sort of tools you're using, but because they've got hardware that's actually doing some of the processing of that, you're actually getting better compression. So you're getting a better experience overall. So people that I use this equipment on and said, how do you think it is? What's the quality like? I didn't even have to ask it for some people that I tested it out with. Straight away, they went, oh, gee, you're coming through clear, or gee, that's a good image, or just, again, the sound quality was coming through really well. The other thing that I really liked the idea of was the simplicity of it. Now, there's nothing worse, and, and we've all seen it when you're playing around, someone's trying to get something working properly or fiddling around, or... Oh, we've done, been there, done that, that's yeah, right. yeah. Or you're meant to start a meeting at a certain time, and you're waiting for it to happen. You know, well, I'm here, I'm ready, it's two o'clock, why isn't it happening? And you can just picture at the other end, someone's going, how do I start this meeting now? What's going on here? And again, by having some touchscreens built into the audio device, for example, by having the ability to actually just make it work, the idea or the example that Crestron gave me was that you have it so that it's so simple that the CEO of the organisation walks in and says, start video conference, click that button there, and away I go. Now, that's oversimplifying it a little bit, but it is easy, and even to the point where you set up the entire room. One of the things Crestron have done over the years is done a whole range of automation. I would call it home automation now, but Crestron started before it was home automation. It was automating things. So you can walk into a room, you might want the lights dimmed in a certain way, or you might want certain screens turned on, depending on how many people are participating. You can do all that and automate the whole process, or just have the video conferencing, whatever you like. But there's a screen that sits on the outside of the room, and it's got a different colour on that screen to let you know whether or not that room's being used. So ah. when you walk up to your room, oh, someone's in that room, I'll come back later. And then you can check on the screen to see what time it's being used for and book your meeting in. So again, not trying to put down CEOs here, but Simple enough for a CEO to walk up, book the meeting in, and then come back and run the meeting without needing to call tech support and say, help, I don't know what's <laughs> going on here. So Yeah, so simple yeah, simple setup and design, yeah. uh, simple usage and great sound. Keys for you know, any business or large organisation, I guess, um, is going to really lap this up. That's right. And what organisations aren't doing video conferencing now, everyone's doing it. Mm. So I appreciate the support from Crestron. As I said, they're our sponsor for this episode, so I appreciate the support they're giving there. But I wouldn't support a product that I didn't actually think was a good product, which is why when they asked to come along on board as a sponsor, the first thing I said, happy to do it, send me out the gear, let me have a play with it, because if it's not going to work, I don't want to put our name to it and support it. So if you do some video conferencing, and let's face it, who doesn't now, have a look at their products. There is a dedicated landing page, meetwithcrestron.com forward slash tech talk. Note that Crestron is C-R-E-S-T-R-O-N. Have a look at that site and fill in your details if you want someone to contact you. They can help you transform the way you do your video conferencing. Mm, stepping it up a notch. Okay, Star Trekkers, the moment you've been waiting for almost 60 years. Finally, Captain James T. Kirk is going to get his chance to go into space, a place where only... Well, some people have been before. Now, Jeff Bezos continues to bust out aged care facilities um, and, and fire people into the mesosphere. Uh, and this time, Matt, it's William Shatner's turn. He was too slow to get away. So what's the full story here? Yeah, good luck to him, I think. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fantastic. <laughs> yes, I'm sure William will be up there and say, where no man has gone before. But it's one of those things that Bezos has done very cleverly. 
He's got a bit of marketing around this. William Shatner's 90 years of age. Very well known, obviously, for Star Trek. I think he was only in yeah. Star Trek for about three years. I think he only ran from about 66 to 69. Didn't matter. He wrote the book. <laughs> That's right. Well, not officially, but yeah. And I don't think it was that popular when it first came out, but obviously later on, Shatner became a, a cult hero in a in a whole cult show. There's yeah. a whole bunch of Trekkies out there still. So the, the marketing around this really is, hey, look at this. We've taken someone who has been in space on stage for, or not for well, long, but- so known for being in space. Yep. Known for that. Why and don't we put him up there in space? Put him there. Yeah. <laughs> now, at 90, he will break the record of Wally Funk, who has the current record for the oldest person in space, 82 years old, Wally yeah, Funk. So yeah, she was 82. She was the astronaut who, well, she missed her chance to be an astronaut. Astronaut, I understand. Yeah. She went up on New Shepard. She, she went up on Bezos's rocket. Yeah, yeah. Before. Sorry. So yeah, back in the sixties, she missed her chance. Yeah. And so they. Yep. Yeah. So Bezos took him up. So again, Bezos is quite clever in his marketing, picking people like Wally Funk, picking people like William Shatner, and taking them up there. And I suppose the broader question then becomes the whole space tourism. It's all well and good for us to see someone like Shatner known around the world. Oh, that's pretty cute. He's going up there into space. Good on him. But what does that mean for you and me? And I think that's the real question people have. Sure, we've talked about it before. You can reserve a ticket in one of these ones, whether it be with Musk's company or Branson's or Bezos's company. But it's going to be expensive. We're talking about several hundred thousand. Unless you win the raffle, because he has a raffle every now and then. <laughs> I know, he? that's right. So that, that is really opening up to, to the average man. But there are other things, I think. And I think the really interesting thing here is in the old days, we saw space races were between countries. Mm. China and the US or Russia and the US, we saw these space races, the European Space Commission. I mean, all of these government-sponsored organisations went into space. Private organisations didn't go into space. But it gives you an idea, I suppose, of just how rich some of these people are now that they've got nothing else to do with their money. So why not create their own space race? And then they want to make money out of it eventually. Space tourism, is that how they make their money? Launching satellites, is that how they make their money? I think it'll be a range of these things. But it is really interesting how the world has changed away from those government-sponsored. And you now have companies like NASA who are using some of these private companies to launch some of their stuff yeah. into space. So it's gone complete reverse where yeah. it used to only be the government-sponsored agencies. Yeah. Uh, so I, I just think it is. It's Sure, it's, it's quite cute that William's going up there, but I just think the broader picture here is still pretty exciting for all of us, whether you or I go to space one day or whether we're using things that were put into space by some of these private companies, I think it's going to have an impact on all of our lives. Well, there's still some some whispers from engineers that are in the tight circle there that it's still we're moving a little bit too quickly here for their liking. But um, this is a bit of a pioneering thing, right? So, yeah. yeah, pioneers are risk takers. They are risk takers. And the fact that Bezos and Branson have both been prepared to go up in those rockets themselves, mm. that gives you a bit of an idea that, They've got some confidence. And I remember the story when the Centrepoint Tower was built in Sydney, and, and I'm not great with heights, and so when people stand there and lean on the glass and lean out looking over there, I, I do it. I don't love it. Yeah, I do it just because you've got to do it. Yeah. But the story, apparently, who knows if it was a myth or not, but apparently the engineer that put it up there or that was designing it, when they were looking at that initially, they said, do you think the glass is safe when glass can break and someone could fall all that way to their death. And apparently he stood back at five metres and ran at the window and jumped into it and shoulder parged <laughs> it and bounced back off it. And he said, I'm pretty confident about that being safe. Now, you've got to have some confidence in that, whether it's a story or not, who oh, knows. But that the, would have had my heart in my mouth. <laughs> but these guys have obviously been prepared to go up into space. They didn't need to, but they did. So they've got enough confidence. But I think you're right. It is risky. It's still risky going up into space. Well, I haven't heard anything more from Virgin Galactic for a while. I mean, July 
July 11th was their big date. And yeah. Branson got up there for, uh, was it 15 or 20 minutes or yeah. so? Not long. Um, and then he, was, he came down again. Uh, did uh, SpaceX take someone up for a couple of days? Is that right? Um, but um, Branson has, um, yeah, Branson's gone quiet. He has a bit, yeah, after he beat Bezos to the yeah, punch. Yeah, he won the, won the race. That's it. Wiped the sweat off his brow and, yeah. and sat back in his chair. And so who will win the race? I don't know. I think all three will be competitors in there for some mm. time to come and maybe other ones will come as well. These are all three American companies as well. You might get other space tourism or space races coming from other companies from other countries. But at the moment, yeah, I don't know. The, in terms of the engineering side of it, I'm sure there'll be an accident somewhere sometime soon and that'll scare everyone and maybe they'll just put a big stop on it for a little mm. while. But you're right, they're pioneers and sometimes accidents happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> yeah, I keep telling my son, keep your accidents um, easily uh, fixable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Selfie filters, they're a bit of fun. But there are some people out there who deem them an absolute necessity, judging by my social media feed. Indeed, in the age of the video conference, where people have spent more time taking long glances at themselves on screens than ever before, it wasn't going to take long before tech developers decided to create a screen specifically designed to enhance the online conference experience and make everyone look more attractive. Matt... Are we set to see a boom in office romance culture, perhaps, out of this? <laughs> well, I'm actually disappointed, James, it's taken this long. When you say it hasn't taken long, it's taken a year and a half to get there. And so many video conferences I've been on, I've watched and I've just, I want to tell people to do it properly. They've got <laughs> bright lights behind they're them low, or they're yeah. looking up their nose. Or, yeah. You just you feel like saying, Billy, just can you, can you move a bit to the <laughs> left? And you've got a little picture there, you know, you can see yourself and you can see what everyone else is seeing. But oh. so, so finally, and I said it has taken some time, this company has come out with a video conference monitor. And so they've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to look good when you're on a video conference. Hallelujah. Thank goodness. <laughs> so they've done a few things with this. They've basically built some lights into the monitor that shine on your face. Ah. So many times we see lights from above. You get these Stage big dark magic. shadows. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right. You get these big dark shadows underneath your eyes. People look like they haven't slept for a week. Or they have the light from behind. Or they're sitting in front of a window. Yeah. You get this bright light that's from so behind. so common. Yeah, they feel much better because they feel well lit themselves. That's right. But the screen sees just this shadow. Yeah, that's right. You get a big dark shadow there. It looks like some creepy guy on this video <laughs> conference. So they've got light shining at your face. And they're nice soft light so they don't mm. bounce off your face too much so that's great fantastic we've got that covered the next thing i often see in a video conference is trying to work out where their camera is so they've got this camera situated right in the middle of the screen right in the center so you can see the camera and you know where you should be looking when you're talking to people rather than looking somewhere else completely away from where yeah, the camera is. yeah that's be. it yeah it's um we make a connection when we look at people yeah that's and right you're not looking at someone when you're looking away from the screen you're looking at them on the screen but you're not looking into the camera yeah so it looks like you're uh, you're a bit distance when, when and you're one talking. notebook manufacturer in particular came out a whole series of notebooks they brought out with the camera at the bottom of the monitor rather than the top yeah. and so for that it was always looking up someone's nose as soon as i saw <laughs> someone go oh, i guess you've got a brand X computer because I can see straight up your nose. And they oh, how did you know that? And so that was a stupid idea from that company. But anyway, they put this in the right place. They've also got decent microphones and speakers. And again, you start those video conferences, you always turn up five minutes late because the first five minutes are when people are mucking around, can you hear me? Can You, can, you got me there? <laughs> can you, is that right now? So you just let people have their little play with that and finally get their headset going, whatever it might be. So this has got good directional microphones. You're not hearing the dogs bark and two rooms away, you're hearing that person and they can hear properly as well. And then they've made it all easy to connect. So they've just got one USB port to plug straight into your computer, a bit of software to load. So it all just works seamlessly. There so they can go. be sitting there waiting for the call 
and away it goes. As an added bonus, it's got a wireless charger built into the base, so they can sit their phone on the base and charge their phone while it's going. I thought that was a nice little add-on. <laughs> yeah. But it's this sort of thing that I think we'll see, and we mentioned at the beginning of the show, where we're going to have more and more of this hybrid workspace. If I had a hybrid workspace and I had some employees at home, I'd say, let's get you one of these monitors because I want to make sure that you look as good as possible yeah. when you're out there talking to our customers. Yeah, mm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a little bit of stage magic do, um, goes a long way, I think. It yeah. does, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, well, yeah. good on them. And um, is it affordable? It's um, a reasonable price, I guess. Look, I think you'll pay a little bit more than a normal monitor. So it's a 21-inch monitor. It's going to be about $1,000 or thereabouts, which is a bit dearer than a normal 21-inch monitor, but I think it would be worth it if you were spending a bit of time video conferencing, mm. it would be worth it just to make sure you look good. And then the distraction isn't all about you and not looking good or the shadows or the voice quality. The focus for that whole video conference can be what you've got to say. You can tell when people get distracted because they're looking at themselves <laughs> and they've drifted out of the conversation. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. Well, at least, look, if you can't afford the $1,000, folks, at least face the window. Don't have the window behind you. No one cares about you illuminating the screen. USB-C cables, Matt, uh, I thought that it was all pretty easy, pretty straightforward. You just buy a cable, plug it in, it does its job. <laughs> But apparently I was fooling myself. You were fooling yourself. One USB-C cable does not equal another. No, Sad no. face. And it's really interesting because the exciting news here is that we've got USB cables now. The new standard of USB cables is that you've got 240-watt charging, which is very exciting, mm. and you've got 40 gigabit per second download speed. So, so, so you've got to choose either or. Well, no, you don't. But they're the two things that are exciting about this story. Okay. all right. The, conf the confusing part about this story is that, yes, when you go and look at the labelling on USB-C cables, you might see a label that says 240-watt charging. You go, great, I'll grab that cable. But it may or may not support the 40 gigabits per second transfer speed. Or you see one that says 40 gigabits per second, great, I'll grab that. It may not support 240-watt. <laughs> You've also got another label that says 240-watt and... 40 gigabits per second transfer speed. So you may have both labels on that particular cable. In which case, you'd say, great, that one will do both of them for me. But you've got to be careful with that labeling. And then this is assuming that the manufacturers adhere to the USB Implementers Forum or the USB IF as it's known. That's a group that maintains these standards. There's no compulsory process for you to label these cables in the right way. So you might get <laughs> a renegade manufacturer or someone that's manufacturing things on the cheap that just says, latest USB standard. So you buy that and you think, that's great, I've got the latest USB standard. But did you check whether it had USB 240 and USB 40 as part of that labelling process? Oh, goodness me. <laughs> I need emblazoned on the front of the box there. It's a high-speed charger or high-speed data transfer or both. Oh. That's right. So there is a, a bunch of labelling that you can actually look at so you can actually find that. So if you are buying USB-C cables, you're right, it's not one size fits all. Well, it is one size fits all, but it's not one <laughs> transfer speed or one charging speed for everyone. But you just have to keep an eye out for those because one of the really exciting parts about this is that notebooks, for example, often will still come with a good old-fashioned plug pack because there isn't enough power in USB-C to run a high-powered notebook. But with 240-watt charging through the USB, the latest USB-C standards, you'll get to the stage where you don't, won't even need to worry about that proprietary plug pack, that proprietary charger that comes with that particular notebook. Mm. It'll just be USB-C will be enough power to charge that and keep that notebook running. So it is mm. exciting news that we've got these high transfer speeds, we've got more power coming out of it, and make it more universal. Let's make it easier for everyone. But just the labelling might make it just a touch confusing for everyone. <laughs> Nothing's <laughs> <Sorry>. ever simple. <laughs> Nothing's ever simple! 
Folks, it's Jetsons time. Ever wanted a Rosie the Robot of all of your own? We've been promised these for decades, and I was just watching like a Rocky Four clip before we did this show. Back in 1985, I don't know if you remember, the in Rocky Four, you had a, a personal robot uh, made that was coming around and helping out around the house. Well, Amazon, folks are releasing one, and it's not a moment too soon. Say hello, folks, to Astro, your personal household assistant. I don't remember that one in Rocky IV. Oh, you've got to go and get the video yeah. of Dolph Lundgren, and, you know, Sly Stallone, and the robot. Yeah, right. Now, <laughs> what were you doing watching Rocky IV before you came here? Saying, <laughs> <laughs> That's the more important question. I read my notes on this story and went, what was that movie? It had Sly Stallone in it, and I thought, was it Rocky IV? And then I went on YouTube, and yes, it was Rocky IV. Yeah, yes. there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So that's why you're three hours late. the most memorable yeah. part of Rocky IV, I guess. You, you had to watch the whole movie then, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you're right. Amazon has Sorry, got... Sorry, can I just pause? Yep. I must break you, I believe is the line. <laughs> that's <Okay>. it. <laughs> so Amazon has launched Astro. Now, Astro is a household robot. So basically, it's like an Echo show on wheels. And some of the critics of this have said it really is just a Amazon Echo on wheels. You can talk to it. And well, get... it kind of looks like a canine out of Doctor Who. You it know, from the, from the early 80s or whatever. <laughs> uh, cross between that and R2-D2, maybe. Yeah. And they've tried <laughs> to put big eyes on the screen to make yeah. it look cute. There's always awesome. the... The Hollywood sort of thing, or the, the Disney thing to draw big eyes there. But it does do a few extra things. So it can move around the house, obviously, as long as you've got a single-story house because it can't negotiate stairs and not even very big bumps. So if you've got big steps going into a door, for example, it's going to struggle with that just a little bit. So mm. single floor, that's great. If you've got a multi-story home, buy a couple of them, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and you can say, please go and check on things for me. So, for example, one of the examples that Amazon gave was you leave home and you go to work and then you go, oh, did I turn the iron off or mm. did I turn the stove off when I cooked breakfast this morning? So you can get Astro to come along and just check where the iron is. And it's got a little periscope that will pop out the top of it. It's only fairly short in its structure normally, but it can pop out to a bit over a metre. So I can look at a stove, for example, and just check that everything's okay on the stove. It's all very cool. It is. It, and that's exactly it. It's cool. It's not necessary yeah, yeah, I know. but it's cool not, you have to have it but <laughs> folks you've got to watch the ad uh, on youtube uh, it, it's got all the feels it's um yeah it's very very cool it's good cameras of course it can see around the house you can put no-go zone so if you don't want to go into the bathroom for example accidentally catching you in the shower you put a no-go zone for the bathroom but you can have it roll around or roll around the rest of the house and look at various bits and pieces about the only practical thing i found is that if someone's in the kitchen and you're in the lounge room watching a bit of rocky for example and you need a <laughs> soft drink brought to you then you can say astro go and get someone in the kitchen to put a drink, drink. on you you can't open the fridge yet because you haven't got any ability to do that but someone else can open the fridge put a drink on there and then you can bring it in and find me and then give me that drink so mm, limited functionality there yeah. so <laughs> oh, it's a start I think if I said to someone <laughs> in the kitchen can you put that drink on there they'd probably say come and get it yourself you lazy sod <laughs> you, know, you know I'm thinking uh, for those people who are a little bit hesitant about having a Google Home or an Alexa or whatever this is probably not for them because <laughs> no. at least with Google Home you can go to another room right. and have your whispered conversations this thing's going to follow you around Around. That's everything. exactly right. So <laughs> it might be helpful for some home security. It might be helpful to show your friends that you can get a drink from the kitchen and bring it in. But it's the mm. first step. And I think that's the thing. We're not at Rosie's level yet. We've got a little way to go for Rosie. But it's just something where Amazon likes doing some experimental things sometimes. They like to show off their 
technological nous, and this is one way of doing it. The really disappointing part is that it's not going to come to Australia. Oh. It, well, at this stage. Yeah. They're selling it in America. It's US $1,000 for people that order it straight away. There'll be a, a dearer fee later on. If it's successful and they sell enough, I dare say it'll go around the world. But at this stage, America only. And I do remember the first Amazon Echo show that came out, you couldn't get in Australia. And I actually got my brother in America to buy me one and ship it over because I wanted one. <laughs> and the only frustrating part was I couldn't get it to recognise our home city as a town uh. for weather. So it kept getting one that was close in America to the same sound. So I was getting the weather and the time from that particular place in America. I worked out a way around it eventually. Some place called Darbo <laughs> or something. <laughs> like that, yeah. <laughs> but I got around it, but it was a bit clumsy because it wasn't made to be an international device. It was made to be an American device. So, But this is the same. I imagine that it will basically recognise if you said go and get a Bud Light out of the fridge, it wouldn't say go and get a Tui's New out of the fridge, for example. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's one of the limitations. But I hope they bring it out. I just hope it's the the next step we're going down this path of having some home servants that are robotic. Well, it was interesting cool that, that you said, though, um, it's not something you really need. And let's face it, no one really needs it. But with the ad, that's how it starts off. So the husband's brought this home and his wife's looking at it going, we don't really need this. <laughs> and by the end of the ad, <laughs> she's going, I'm really glad we got this. Yeah, yeah right. And, and that's the thing. I think sometimes the real great innovators with science and technology over the years have always come up with something that you didn't know you needed and then in a very short period of time, you can't live without it. Yeah, and, and it just, you know, they get enough of them out there and someone will find a, another use for it or a creative way of using it. Yeah. And, um, and all of a sudden, everyone's got to have one. But, but think of Edison. Back in the 1880s, we had kerosene lamps in our house and that was okay. We didn't know we needed electricity and incandescent light bulbs in our house until suddenly they're available. And you jump forward to... A smartphone, for example, we didn't know that we needed 32 ways to make ourselves sound like we were passing wind. But once you had an app that did that, how could you possibly live without that? Can't put it down. <laughs> well, look, I'm a fan. Put me down for two. Even though you can't get them in Australia, I'll, I'll have two anyway. And uh, when they come out, yeah. You spend some money on this show. All these things that I come up with, you keep, keep ordering. <laughs> look, and I really want you to keep me posted on how the Transformers project is going. You know, um, I, I want a, a family car that can play catch. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe take a walk for us to the shops rather than driving to the shops. And walk in the shops. It sounds and, reasonable. Um, talk to me in one of those deep, rich, metallic voices. <laughs> Back in the old days before COVID 19, organising a meeting was easy. You bought a few coffees and put them in the boardroom and let the smell of coffee permeate throughout the office. Now you have to schedule a conference call, integrate different platforms, share content, control a room. Oh, it all gets too complicated. That is until you use Crestron to create a seamless hybrid working environment to manage your Teams or Zoom or WebEx meeting environment and focus on your meeting. Visit meetwithcrestron.com forward slash tech talk to take your pain away. In the meantime, folks, that stumps for another Tops episode of uh, Tech Talk. Thanks heaps, Matt. And oh, my pleasure it is. It's very exciting, actually, the number of listens we're getting and the feedback we're getting from people. It is exciting to know that we can actually help educate and inform people around the world. Mm. Yeah, look, and, and this week I really love the bit about the vertical farming too. i got some big ideas for our backyard. Don't stir up the farmers, James. <laughs> I was trying to just keep them pacified slightly there. <laughs> and that's it from me. I'm your host, James Eddy. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Don't make me come around there and get pushy with you. 